came across an article a few years ago in a publication that many of you perhaps receive in your homes rather unwillingly. If I were to mention the name of this publication, you would immediately, many of you know exactly what I'm talking about, but I won't name the publication. But let's just say that it's a publication that often likes to tear down Adventism. It comes from a gentleman who used to be a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, and so he has aimed his guns at those who still cling to this beautiful faith that we all celebrate here today. I want to read for you this article. It's called Finding My Sabbath Rest. And when I read this article, I was quite startled by the simplicity of it, but also the misguidedness of it. It's just a one-page long article, and just sit back and see if you can identify with it at all. The author writes, It was noon on the first Sabbath of December 1998. Deliberately, I stood in front of the washer, loaded clothes, measured detergent, and started the wash cycle. If Jesus really fulfilled the law, I reasoned to myself, then I have to be willing to act in faith on that conviction. It's not enough merely to attend church on Sunday. I deliberately have to treat Sabbath as well as Saturday. Richard and I had been holding home church on Sundays with our neighbors for two years. We had been growing in Jesus, and our lives had changed drastically. We were experiencing security in Him for the first time. We knew He had saved us. The Bible was completely a new book to us. In spite of having church on Sunday, however, we had not had the courage to abandon the Sabbath. Although we didn't go to church on the seventh day, we still treated it as a a day of leisure. We didn't do any work. We rested and read. We kicked back. Although we could clearly state that we knew we were securing our salvation apart from Sabbath, there lurked a fear behind our bold assertions. What if Adventists were right? What if Sabbath really was significant? We hedged our bets. We could do church on Sunday, but we still wouldn't give up Sabbath. Besides, we loved Sabbath. Having every weekend completely absorbed, however, made life difficult. We finally discussed our problem. We prayed. Everything in us rebelled at the thought of desecrating Sabbath. How could we be sure we weren't deceived in thinking the Sabbath was a part of the law Jesus fulfilled? Finally, however, we knew the answer. If it was true, as the Bible said, that nothing we did contributed to our salvation that what matters is not observing laws but being new creations, then we had to make our lives congruent with our convictions. We had to give up our symbol of truth, our sign of belonging to God. We had to give up the Sabbath deliberately. In order to put our faith and confidence fully in Jesus, we had to stop hedging our bets. We had to throw all of ourselves, even our fears, on His mercy. We had to give up our tradition of Sabbath observance in the same way the new Corinthian believers had to be willing to give up meat offered to idols. For them to eat meat offered to idols, if they were still weak in faith, or if they were eating in front of those weak in faith, would mean triggering a cascade of memories and habits that would lead them into sin. Similarly, Sabbath-keeping kept us in a place of incomplete surrender, of allowing fear, false doctrine, and familiarity rather than faith to determine our practice. Thus, I stood in front of my washer, boldly doing laundry on Sabbath. 
Richard chose to make a public statement, he mowed the lawn on Sabbath afternoon. The miracle didn't come until later. One week passed. We stood together in the kitchen. Every Sabbath this week, every day was Sabbath this week, Richard confided with wonder. I used to hope to experience Jesus like this on Sabbath, but I never did. I felt his presence with me every day. So did I, I turned to him. I never expected this. The Holy Spirit confirmed that Jesus, not a day, is our Sabbath rest. And the wonder of his presence has never left us. Only when we actually gave up the Sabbath for Jesus did he confirm the truth with his palpable presence. Jesus is all we need. Well, that's a fine kettle of stew, isn't it? You have the last line there in your study guide. Pull those out, if you will. Notice what this author of the article wrote. I gave her name there, did not give the publication, just for trying to keep it as anonymous as possible. But notice what she said there in the last paragraph. The first thing you have there in your study guide. The Holy Spirit confirmed that Jesus, not a day, is our Sabbath rest. And the wonder of his presence has never left us. Only when we actually gave up the Sabbath for Jesus did he confirm the truth with his palpable presence. Jesus is all we need. You know, we can say to that last statement that Jesus is all we need, we can say a hearty amen, can't we? Isn't it Jesus? Isn't that all we need? Of course, where the dilemma comes in, as this lady unfortunately fell into, was this idea that Jesus and the Sabbath are somehow at odds with one another. Does it have to be either Jesus or the Sabbath, or the Sabbath or Jesus? Can it not be both? We're going to open the pages of your Bibles this morning to the book of John. We read it for our scripture reading this morning. And as we turn there, I wonder if some of us at times feel like this lady, in all honesty. Some of us feel like the Sabbath is a burden. Some of us feel like it's about a list of rules. Some of us feel like it's a list of do's and don'ts. And guess what? We're going to talk about this a little bit next time, but it is a day of do's and don'ts, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't my relationship with my wife, aren't there do's and don'ts with my relationship with Camille? All right. Boy, I don't. I see a little uncertainty here among the brethren and sister in here. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lanny. We'll get into that a little later. But let's open to John chapter five. The reality is, this lady, as many of us, has only heard the rules when it comes to the Sabbath. And though there are boundaries, the Sabbath, as we learned last time, is first and foremost about relationship. It's about responding to the God of grace. But let's pick it up in John chapter 5. Notice what John records here in John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. We need to stop right there for a second, because the name Bethesda in John chapter 5 verse 2 holds the gospel in it right there in its fullness. I had never noticed this before. Actually, as I was preparing the sermon, I thought I had never noticed it before, but I looked back and I read a sermon that I had preached a year ago on the same story, and I actually realized that then I guess it didn't stick with me. That just goes to show that we need to hear these things over and over and over again, right? 
But the name Bethesda has an important truth to it. It has an important revelation to us. It has a very significant idea that we need to recognize because it it gives the context and the framework for this whole story. Now, some of you may have a Bible that has an alternate reading. It may read Beth-Zatha or something to the effect, either Bethesda or Beth-Zatha. It has the same meaning in Hebrew or Aramaic, which are related two related languages. But the word Bethesda means house of grace. You know, when I realized that for the first time, or the second time, as the case may be, I thought to myself, wow, that gives a whole new context to this passage, doesn't it? Here, Jesus comes into the house of grace, and he is seeking to show a very significant reality about his character, as well as a reality about another thing's character. So we continue reading that Jesus came by the sheep gate to a pool, which is called in Hebrew, House of grace or house of mercy is another way to put it. But we continue reading, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Now, Some of your Bibles may not have verse 4 and part of verse 3 because this portion is not found in the original manuscripts. Some of our versions have it. And so, actually, if you read uh, Ellen White in The Desire of Ages, she actually clarifies, realizing that there's a discrepancy in the manuscripts, she actually says that the people supposed that an angel came down and stirred the waters, making it clear that an angel did not actually come down and stir the waters. But notice, this man has been, he, he has been sick and infirmed for 38 years. We don't know what his ailment was. We don't know what his challenge was, what his health problem was. But for 38 years, he was battling with disease and sickness. And so, eventually, he comes to this pool, hoping beyond hope that he will find healing in that pool. Notice what it goes on to say, however, in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, he asked him a question that seems like a no-brainer to all of us, yet Jesus asked nonetheless. He said, do you want to be made well? Now who among us would not answer in the affirmative? Who among us would not say, of course I want to be made well? We have a cold, we have a cancer, we have whatever the case may be. Yes, we want to be made well. But you know, Jesus goes on to give insight into the reality that this was not simply physical healing that the man needed. See, in verse 9, Jesus instructs the man, sorry, verse 14, Jesus instructs the man very carefully. He says, sin no more that a worse thing, lest a worse thing come upon you. You see, Jesus reveals that this man's real sickness was sin. He revealed that the the disease that the man had was self-induced after years and years and years of abuse. And so the question of do you want to be made well is very appropriate. 
Because this Jesus wanted this man to, to understand very clearly that what he really needed was spiritual healing. What he really needed was a cure for sin. You see, many of us, unfortunately, sadly, in fact, it's very uh, basic and kind of built into human nature, we want to be cured of the physical problem. We want to be cured of the guilt and the pain, but we don't want to be cured of the root of the problem. We want the pain to go away, we just don't want the poison to go away. We want, we want to be able to look at God and look, be in His presence without feeling guilt, but we don't want the thing that actually causes the guilt to be removed. You know? I, I see that in my own experience. I'm sad to admit it. But you know, I am sure you've been there as well. But you do something to make a person upset, and you want, you want to be in a good spot with them. You just want to kind of smooth things over, right? And you want, you want things to be returned back to normal. But you don't, nor do I, want to actually change and overcome the thing that caused the problem in the first place. So Jesus has to ask this man, do you want to be made well? Do you want healing? Not just physical healing. Do you want to actually be made whole, complete? That's what the Greek word for well means, to be made complete and whole, not just simple temporal made well, not some simple temporal healing. Notice what the man says in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. This man had evidently gotten to the place in his physical debilitation that he was no longer even to climb into the pool himself. He needed somebody else to do it, but he didn't have anybody else. You know, this little exchange here is a beautiful contrast between the ways of man-made religion and the ways of God. You see, this man felt that in order to receive healing, he had to pursue it himself. He had to be the one to go through all the painstaking efforts. He had to be the one to exert the energy, the effort to be made well. And Jesus, guess what? The one who could really give healing actually came and pursued him. That's a beautiful reality that you and I think it's up to us to do it. Every false system of worship, every false system of religion is based upon what man does in order to attain salvation, to attain healing, to attain whatever it is that they're trying to attain. But the God of the Bible, the God that we see in Scripture, and the God that we see in Jesus says, no, 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 it's about me coming to you. It's about me pursuing you, about me seeking you. It's about me approaching you for healing. Notice what verse 8 says, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. Then there's a period. And then we have six words in English that absolutely jar the whole story. It absolutely throws it all off. It absolutely messes up the whole scene. Last year, when I was going through my devotional time in the book of John, I came across this story in the, one of the mornings that I was going through it. And I started reading the story, and I was just so engaged in the love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. And I was being so enthralled with the narrative and then all of a sudden I came to the next line and I said, whoa, 
This story is about something totally different than I expected because what are those six words? Every hint of irony is, is placed in these six words. And that day was the Sabbath. That just comes out of nowhere. We're moving along, like I said, in a beautiful, warm, fuzzy picture of what Jesus is doing. He's bringing healing to this man who needs healing, who for 38 years has been trying to find a way to be made well. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we read these words, and that day was the Sabbath. You know, we maybe cannot appreciate the irony of that statement as the original audience could. We may not appreciate the significance of that statement, but it would be like, I was, as I was thinking about this, it would be like us picking up a newspaper or a magazine and starting to read an article. And in the article, it has a story of a, a couple that is madly in love with one another. And they're spending a little time with one another. They, they're having a long-distance relationship, but they're together for a weekend, and they, they're having a great time. And then the, the, the boyfriend has to leave in the morning. And so they come to the airport, and the, the uh, girlfriend you know, gets out of the car. They hug. They sob their tears. They say their goodbyes. And the man turns, and he goes into the terminal, and the woman drives off. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this sentence. And that day was September 11. All of a sudden, the whole story would take on a new context, wouldn't it? All of a sudden, we would realize, reading that as Americans, or those who at least live here, we would realize that this story is about something else. It's not just a love story. There's going to be trouble ahead, isn't there? And so when we come across that sentence, and it was the Sabbath, it's a warning light to tell us that something is going to happen. There is some, some conflict that is going to arrive now on the scene. Now notice what what John goes on to say, the Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Now notice verse 16, for this reasons, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. You know what? This wasn't the only time that Jesus made the mistake of breaking the quote-unquote law on the Sabbath, was it? Matter of fact, if you go through the Gospel accounts, you'll come across seven instances when Jesus takes on the common tradition of Sabbath-keeping. Over and over and over again, Jesus deliberately sets up a showdown, so to speak, to go face-to-face -face with the traditional way of keeping the Sabbath. And this is one of those places. There's a couple other places in the book of John, as well as the other Gospels, of course. But Jesus was very deliberate. He took it on face-on. Face, face why was it? Now, many people suppose, of course, that Jesus was trying to do away with the Sabbath. But why would he spend so much time trying to reframe the Sabbath if he was really just trying to do away with it? Some people have, have raised the question, I think it's a very good one, 
that if you were going to tear down a house, would you spend months of your time trying to remodel it first? No. If you're, if you're remodeling the house, obviously you see value in it and you're trying to put it in a different light. But if you're wanting to tear something down, you wouldn't spend all your, a lot of time and energy trying to revamp it, trying to reframe it, trying to bring it to a different light. Notice what Jesus says in verse 17. But Jesus answered them. This is very interesting. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. What happens as a result? As happened many times when Jesus had a showdown about Sabbath keeping. They started plotting how to kill Jesus. They were so infuriated about his Sabbath practices that they decided that they needed to take this man out because he was breaking the law. Why don't you go back to the book of Matthew for a second. Keep your finger in John chapter 5. But notice another instance, another example, where Jesus has a showdown over the Sabbath with the Jewish leaders. Notice what we see in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, because Jesus uses a similar, he uses a similar idea in Matthew 12 as he does in John chapter 5. But notice, John, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now, we won't read all the verses, but the Pharisees see what's happening, and they are absolutely angry at what's going on. Because to them, Jesus and his disciples are breaking the law. They are breaking the commandments. They are breaking the traditions is really what they were doing. So notice how Jesus answers them. We're going to skip down to verse 5. He says, Or have you not read in the law? See, they had been accusing him of breaking the law, when in fact, if you go through all the times that Jesus supposedly breaks the law on the Sabbath, he never once breaks the actual law. He simply breaks their man-made laws. He says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? You see, the Pharisees recognized that there was a work to be done on the Sabbath. He said, oh yeah, the priests have to take care of the sacrifices. They have to go through the, all, the, all the work of, of preparing the sacrifice. So Jesus points to the priests, and notice what he goes on to say, however, in verse 6. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Jesus is saying that my work supersedes the work of the priests. My work is actually more important than theirs. Yet you acknowledge that their working is appropriate. Why can't my working be even more appropriate and more important? But notice the next line, because I think it is a key to understanding why Jesus deliberately took on the traditions of the Sabbath. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. See, the Pharisees, what were they doing on the Sabbath? They were uplifting sacrifice. They were uplifting rule following. They were uplifting do's and don'ts over and above everything else. 
And Jesus says, you're missing the point altogether. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's not about coming to church and putting on nice clothes. It's not about singing. It's not about paying your tithes. The Sabbath is all about mercy. It's all about grace. It's all about you resting and God working. You see, the Jews, very subtly, they had it backwards. That's why Jesus said, my father is working. Do you think Jesus takes a Sabbath rest? Do you think God rests on Sabbath now? See, in the very beginning, he rested in a perfect world. But guess what? We live in an imperfect world, and God has to work overtime and doubly on Sabbath now, doesn't he? That's what he does. Read the book, read the chapter that uh, John 5 is touched upon in Desire of Ages. Uh, Ellen White brings out this point. God works extra hard on Sabbath. And so Jesus says, that's what I'm doing as well. I am working extra hard on Sabbath because I am trying to help you understand that it's not about man working, it's about God working, and it's about man resting. Very simply put, God works, man rests. The Jews had it the opposite way. They thought, God rests, man works. See, that's what Jesus was doing in this story. He was taking on two false ideas of salvation in two different instances. He was taking on the man who thought it was his job to be made well by stepping into the pool. He was taking on the traditions of the Jewish leaders who said, if we can just keep the Sabbath perfectly, we will arrive at where God wants us to be. Did you know, this is very interesting, did you know that the Jews had a tradition? They had a belief? It was in their ancient writings, the Talmud, that if all of Israel could keep the Sabbath perfectly for one day, then the Messiah would come. That's startling. So that's why they had these rules. They had 39 laws, in fact. And they, they, they exacted them upon people. Now, I want to I revisit this just briefly again, and then we'll touch upon it in more in depth next time. But is it appropriate to have rules for Sabbath-keeping? Absolutely. Now, maybe I think it speaks to their strength even more if we don't have to even mention them, because when we have to mention it, it tells us that we're not there, Right? But, you know, there are boundaries and guidelines that God does give us so as to protect us from not entering into full Sabbath rest. But here's the important thing. We fall in one of two ditches when it comes to the Sabbath. We think that the rules in one ditch will save us. Now, many of us don't think that consciously, I don't think. Perhaps we do. Perhaps we do it in a more subtle way. We think to ourselves, well, if I want God to be happy with me, then I'll follow the rules on the Sabbath. That's what the Jews were thinking. If we want God to be happy with us. After all, there is very good evidence from the Old Testament to to realize that one of the reasons the Jews were brought into exile was because their neglect of the Sabbath. So they said to themselves, well, if we want to avoid that ever happening again, we'll set up these rules, and we'll put rules upon rules upon rules. So some of us think that the rules are what earn God's favor when it comes to the Sabbath. And so long as I stay within these rules, I'm doing all right. So long as I stay within these boundaries, I'm in a good place. But what have we talked about time and time before? God wants our heart, doesn't he? He wants our heart. 
Because you and I could be inside the wall, so to speak, but our heart could be outside the wall. God says, I want your heart. The other challenge we have with rule-keeping is when we try to insist that others have to follow those rules. Now, we're going to learn in a few weeks that there are timeless principles when it comes to Sabbath. Timeless, meaning universal, meaning they apply to everybody in whatever context. But there's also the reality that there, are, there is some subjectivity when it comes to the Sabbath. And the problem is not that we follow the rules. The problem is when we insist that everybody else has to follow those same rules. When it's not a thus saith the Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what the Pharisees were doing. You know, they said you can only walk so far on Sabbath. And then what you had to do if you ran out of steps, you'd have to stop and you could turn some saliva in your mouth. And that could be considered a meal and then you could keep on walking. They had all these rules. And, you know, I was actually thinking about this this morning. Some of those rules, no doubt, were pretty good. You know, my wife, bless her heart, she drove down to Pine Tree this morning to Alumni Weekend in Freeport. And I've driven many times on Sabbath long distances. And you know what? It, it just adds stress to my life. And I could personally make a decision and say, you know what, I'm not going to drive long distances on Sabbath. But where I would get in trouble is if I would say to everybody else in here, you cannot drive long distances on Sabbath. It is against the law to drive long distances on Sabbath. See, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were trying to make everybody else follow their man-made rules because they thought that by so doing, God's favor would be placed upon them. And Jesus says, no, 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 hold on just a second. You're following these rules under the guise of resting, when in fact you are trying to work and you're not resting in my finished work. Notice this line here from Dr. Richard M. Davidson, a professor of mine from the seminary. He wrote this in the Adventist Review a few years ago. Every Sabbath, as we rest from our work, we proclaim our experience of righteousness by faith. That we trust not in our own works, but in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. It's such a tragedy when people think that the Sabbath is all about works. How could something be about works when it emphasizes rest? We're resting in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. The Sabbath becomes the outward sign of the rest of grace. That's what Ellen White calls it. The rest of grace. That believers in Christ may experience what? All week long. So it's not just on Sabbath we experience righteousness by faith. It's not just on Sabbath that we experience rest in Him. We can experience it all week, but Sabbath is the day of the week that we get to celebrate it all day. That we are resting in Jesus. You know, the Jews, of course, they couldn't hear any of this. They got upset at Jesus because... He was trying to tear down their man-made traditions. He was trying to tear down their man-initiated works so as to earn God's favor, to as to bring about the Messiah. They couldn't hear that because they wanted to do it themselves, which is what a works-based system of religion is all about, trying to push self forward, isn't it? 
The other reason that they were incredibly upset, of course, is that Jesus was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be equal with God. And so they, they took up, they, they, they wanted to get rid of him because of this. But notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. Earlier in the book of John, John says that no man has seen the Father. The only way we're able to see the Father is to see the Father through Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so what I am doing on Sabbath, you can be sure God is doing as well. What was Jesus doing on that Sabbath? He was trying to show the people that it was the Sabbath was a day of resting in Him. It was a day of healing. It was a day of salvation. After all, in the next verse, sorry, verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. I'm going to turn back to the book of Numbers just for a second because there's a powerful idea here. We're going to look at this and then we're going to wind down here quickly, so stay with us. Don't get too much rest here on Sabbath during my sermon. Numbers chapter 28. Notice this. I had never, come, I'd never realized this, but notice what happened in Numbers 28. This is talking about the sacrifices that were made. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings made by fire is a sweet aroma to me. You shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire, which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day, as a regular burnt offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. So what's going on here? God says that every day there needs to be a lamb that is sacrificed one in the morning and one in the evening. This was called the regular daily sacrifice. It was not sacrificed when someone came and confessed their sin. It was a sacrifice made on behalf of all Israel, whether a person confessed their sins or not, whether a person repented. This sacrifice was made so that, a, so that all of Israel could be saved. It was a reminder of God's saving work on their behalf. Every day, morning and evening. But notice what happens in verse 9. And on the Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year without blemish and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath. And then notice this next part. Besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. Say, oh, pastor, what are you getting at? That seems kind of boring. Well, what happens here? Jesus, God, instructs Israel, instructs the priests to engage in a double sacrifice on Sabbath. Besides the regular daily sacrifice, which was to be a reminder to the people of God's saving power, he says, I want you to double it on Sabbath so that my people can understand my salvation. My people can recognize through the Sabbath that I am trying to show them what my salvation is all about. I am trying to show them what my grace is all about. 
And so you would think on Sabbath, you'd come and you'd say, well, wait a minute, there's more sacrifices going on today than other days. Why is that? It's because God is trying to remind us of his saving grace doubly on that day. It tells me that just as we see in the life of Jesus, as he brings healing, as he brings grace, as we see in the life of Jesus, he is trying to show to us that God works and we rest. God works and we rest. So he brings healing to people. You know, there is a way. I don't want to skip over this Ellen White quotation because we see this in the Sabbath as well. To the death of Christ we owe even this earthly life. The bread we eat is the purchase of his broken body. The water we drink is bought by his spilled blood. Never one saint or sinner eats his daily food, but he is nourished by the body and the blood of Christ. The cross of Calvary is stamped on every loaf. It is reflected in every water spring. Friends, I want to invite you as you're eating your your Sabbath lunch to be reminded of how God has already saved you from sin. Has he not? And we see it especially in the Sabbath. And that's why God brought about healing. You know, we talk about God working and we us resting. But if we were to be like Jesus, we are, are to work as well, but only as a response and in conjunction with God's work. So I want to read this last quotation and then I'm going to share a little anecdote and then I'm going to sit down. And then we're going to break up and go our various places. And we're going to be reminded during our lunch of Jesus' sacrifice as seen through the Sabbath. But notice this. He, this is speaking to us, He will not be held guiltless who neglects to relieve suffering on the Sabbath. Read that over and over and over again. I'd read it many times before, but I came face to face with it this week as I was preparing the sermon like I never had before. He will not be held guiltless who neglects to relieve suffering on the Sabbath. That's why Jesus went out of his way to relieve suffering because he was trying to reveal his saving and healing heart. So why do I bring this up here at the end after saying that we don't have to work and we rest? Because if we are to represent Christ in all of his beauty, you and I will spend our Sabbaths trying to relieve the suffering of humanity. Trying to show them a picture of righteousness by faith. Of grace coming to the individual and bringing relief their suffering heart. You know, the last few years we've met uh, some folks up in Canada. I think maybe I've told you about them. But when we go there to Nova Scotia to our place, a few years ago my dad came across these uh, folks who are wonderful folks. And they live there in Nova Scotia. The man is a vet. And his wife, um, I think she stays... Uh, at home, although they're a little older, so it's not like she's a mother, but she doesn't work is what I'm trying to say. And so uh, my dad had gone to this church, that this Baptist church in the town, because he likes to kind of rub shoulders with people. And uh, he, he met these folks, and 
Somehow, some way, it came up in the course of their conversation that my dad was a Seventh-day Adventist. And they thought, wow, that's great, you know. And they told him, you know what? We've recently discovered the joy of the Sabbath. They live up there in Nova Scotia, in the middle of nowhere. Let me tell you, middle of nowhere. So they try to worship with any Christians they can. But you know, when we go up there, we have all of our clan up there. There's 40 of us this last year, as I told you. We have a Sabbath celebration. You know what? They come and they join us. And you would not believe, as we're singing our songs, Friday nights we sing around the campfire, sing, you know, spiritual songs. They come back the next day. We have a church service. You would not believe the, the smile, the grin that goes from ear to ear on the lady's face. B is her name. She is so excited to be able to fellowship and enjoy a day of grace with people who know the joy of the Sabbath. Many of us take it for granted, don't we? Many of us think it's, a, it's like, a, like this lady. Like this lady. We, all we hear is the rules. And yet God says, you know what? The Sabbath is a day for me to work and you to rest. And out of that rest, you can joyously show my work by going out and being my hands and feet. Not as a way to earn your salvation, but as a way to show my heart to the world. So do you want to enter into that Sabbath rest, that Sabbath joy, that rest in Christ this day? I hope you do.